Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, April 10th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I was having a moment in the shower this morning where I had a random thought. How many pizzas do you think Americans eat in a year? <laughs> oh boy, are we are we are we are you interviewing for me for a job at Google? <laughs> yeah, this sounds like a management consultant interview question. But honestly, how many okay. do you think? All right, so we're going to do this. Okay, so there are what, 300 million people in the U.S.? That seems about right. And of them who eat pizza, maybe, what, half? I would say maybe like twice a month is how often I have pizza. No, 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 but out of the 300 million people, how many actually eat pizza? Oh, that's a good question. I think they're American, so every single one. <laughs> okay, I think you're wrong. I'm going to say half. Okay. So that's 150 million people eating pizza. And so what, you say you eat pizza twice a month? Yeah, I'd say twice a month. How about you? Um, I would say maybe once every six months. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this is why you're Canadian and not American. <laughs> uh, so let's say twice a month. Okay, let's say twice a month on average. So that's 300 million pizzas, wait, a month? Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and what was the question of how many in a day? But I don't eat a whole pizza in a oh, sitting. I, see. I don't know what you think how many, of me. How many slices do you eat? I probably eat somewhere like three and and change each time I eat a pizza. Okay, but also a lot of the 150 million people are kids, so mm. they probably only eat like one slice or the equivalent of one slice. So if there's Three, let's say a third of the people eat three slices, a third eat two slices, which I think is probably the average. That's how many I eat when I eat pizza. And kids eat one slice. So that's um, six slices of pizza per person. No, wait, now I'm completely lost. <laughs> Here's how I thought about it. I said of the 300 million people because they're all, you know, flag waving Americans. They all eat pizza. And they eat it about twice a month, and maybe they eat like a couple slices each, which is probably an underestimate, which probably covers the people that don't eat any pizza. So maybe like five slices a month um, per person times 300 million people, that's uh, 
Uh, one, God, why did I just blank on the math? It's 1.5 billion. 1.5 billion. Please edit that out, Adam. I'm going to say it now so you don't make me sound like an idiot. Okay. So 1.5, uh, it's, no, it's 15 billion slices. What? Wait, no, what did 300 I just say? times six. Oh, no. Five slices, five slices a month. That's what I said. I said five slices five a month. Five slices a month. So 300 times five. Yeah, so 1500, 1. 1.5 yeah. billion. So 1.5 billion slices uh, of of pizza across the US a month. Times yeah. times 12 months. Mhm. So now all of a sudden we're at 18 billion slices of pizza a year. Holy cow. How many slices of pizza are how many slices are in a pizza? Oh, uh, that's another good question. Like, 8 to 10? Maybe like 8, let's say. Yeah. So that's about like two to three billion pizzas a year, according to my math. So I looked this up. It's actually three billion pizzas a year. <laughs> what? <laughs> so with my, you know, flag waving pizza eating Americans, I actually got pretty close. Yeah, it's impressive. And this week I interviewed Sanjoy Mahajan, who's a professor of mathematics at MIT and Olin College of Engineering, who teaches an online course called Street Fighting Mathematics, which is all about this notion of can we bring back estimation, quick and dirty estimation, to actually bring utility to our lives. And he had a lot to say about how math is taught, how we approach math, because I think there's so many people in this nation that think math is hard. That math is difficult and math isn't useful to them. Well, you know, and I think that's one of the things that you hear when you're, if you ever do consider a job in the management consulting industry, you know, and you're faced with a question that seems impossible to answer. You know, people's first response is, well, I don't know. I didn't study the pizza industry. You know, I, I don't know what that number is. And people are kind of generally reluctant to make these as kind of estimations. But I, for me, it's actually one of the things I think is quite fun about math. It's way more fun than like, you know, trying to do some calculus. <laughs> I'm just going to lay that out there. Not a huge fan of calculus. <laughs> I I don't do calculus on my off days either, but I have to say that what I found interesting about what he has to say is that he thinks math has a lot more utility than we ascribe to. And it can really help you cut through the BS that exists in this world, especially when uh, during election cycles, numbers are constantly thrown at you. So if you don't even have a basic understanding of how numbers relate to each other, how ratios work, then it's going to be hard to analyze critically what those numbers mean. Yeah. And I think, you know, a couple times we've interviewed mathematicians on this show. And each time I always, I was, I was always surprised at just how applicable, you know, these little math skills are to our life. So that'll be our interview for today. But first, I wanted to talk to you about a study that I read that made me actually really kind of pleased and gleefully happy. Let me tell you about this. So I'm actually reading a book right now by one of our future guests named Tracy Mann. She was a professor at UCLA when I was doing my PhD there, and she studies eating. And so if eating's been on my mind. Eating so, is always on my mind, if you heard the pizza analogy. <laughs> yeah. So it probably wouldn't surprise you that um, one of the things that came across my desk this week caught my eye, and that is about what do you eat after you have a workout? So my husband is of the, um, you know, idea that when you 
when you go and you work out, it actually makes you feel really healthy and you want to come home and like have a smoothie and eat healthily afterwards. Whereas I'm like, I just worked out. I get to eat whatever I want, right? So I can indulge in, in whatever because I just worked out, right? I think the general consensus goes back to where your husband's thinking that you should eat something nutritious after that. Yeah, well, um, apparently he's wrong. <laughs> so what? are you. So there's a new study that uh, was taken on by the University of Montana. It was published in the International Journal of Sport, Nutrition, and Exercise Metabolism. And what they did is they took 11 male cyclists and they did, uh, they had two experimental trials in randomized order. And each trial was a 90 minute bike ride that repeated, uh, that depleted their glycogen stores, uh, followed by a four hour recovery period. So you do a 90 minute ride and then you have a four hour recovery period. And immediately following each ride, and again, two hours later, so in between that four-hour rest period, the researchers either gave participants some kind of a sports supplement, you know, a Cliff Bar or Gatorade, or fast food, like hamburgers and french fries, hash browns. That sounds horrible after a bike ride. I can't imagine, like, pulling up to the fa- to the drive-thru being like, yeah, a number two to go know. with my 40-mile bike ride. Sounds great to me. The, 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 one of the times I ran a half marathon, and then afterwards we went out for a burger. It was like the best day of my life. Anyway, following the four-hour recovery period, participants then completed a 20-kilometer a time trial. So remember, they do the 90-minute the ride, then they have the four-hour period, then they did this time trial. And here's what they found. First off, researchers looked at muscle biopsies and blood samples taken in between the two rides and found no differences in blood glucose or insulin responses between the people who ate the fast food versus the sports supplements. And the rates of glycogen recovery after feeding were also no different between the two diets. But the most important finding with there was, is that there was also no difference in the time trial performance between the group that ate the hamburgers and the group that ate the cliff bars. Is this just because there wasn't an elongated, you know, two year study where the, these people are eating fast food every time afterwards? D- is there not enough time? Well, I don't know. Maybe. Although I still think that, you know, you should, if there is, most of us feel that if they had, you know, some kind of fast food that was high in fat and, and all these bad calories, after, right after a, a ride that you would not perform very well on the 20 kilometer time trial ride, right? I mean, that seems to be a pretty good bar. Um, but you know, the researchers are quick to point out that it's not like they ate, you know, five hamburgers. I mean, the actual portions were ac- relatively small. And so they're saying that one of the things they've been annoyed with the media um, in terms of reporting the study is that people are saying, hey, you know, fast food really is no different. Um, and so eat as many burgers as you want after you work out. But they're, they continue to remind us that, in fact, moderation is important. Well, I look forward to seeing bike racks at more fast food places in the, in the coming months. <laughs> and I will no longer feel any guilt when uh, I choose the hamburger and my husband chooses the, you know, what is it? Milkshake? No. Smoothie. Smoothie. The science in the news story that caught my eye this week wasn't so much about the science. It's about this protest that's happening atop Mauna Kea in Hawaii. Mauna Kea is one of these fabled, sacred mountains on the big island of Hawaii, that there's a number of astronomy telescopes because it's way up in the air. And because of where it's positioned, you can see many distant galaxies. It's an incredible place. There's actually 14 
large-scale telescopes there. And there was a new project called the 30-meter telescope with the acronym TMT. <laughs> Scientists always come up with the best acronyms. Uh, that's a $1.4 billion project to build a massive telescope there. It would encase in, in the largest mirror known to man within this. And it's a hugely uh, influential astronomy project, potentially. And when they went to the opening ceremonies of it last year, they met with a number of Native Hawaiians who protested the ceremony and actually brought the ceremony to a stop because they feel like this area is sacred land to them and that they're desecrating the area. And there's some environmental impact they're concerned about as well with uh, of having such a large structure here that it will change how the landscape looks and feels. And astronomers have faced this problem numerous times throughout the construction of many telescopes across the nation, including one in Mount Graham in Arizona. And the reaction from the astronomy community has not been altogether positive. There was an article published in the New York Times late last year by George Johnson that was entitled, and let me get this right, Seeking Stars, Finding Creationism, which underlies the tone that I think a lot of astronomers were approaching this, that these people are getting in the way of the progress of science with their potentially not current thinking around uh, religion and and, psych uh, and psychology, which I found this tension is really palpable. And there's a series of discussions going on now in the astronomy community of how to approach this. And I don't know how I feel about it. That, you know, I, in some ways I feel like, are we really sure? Can we really equate someone's love of natural beauty and their land with this notion of creationism? I mean, that seems to me like a bit of a stretch. I think that's the headline getting, getting attention because the article is much more about how the, this has happened many times in astronomy and astronomy always wins out. And he makes an analogy uh, to Galileo in the church. And that's where he sees himself uh, being on the right side of history and that they're impeding this amazing uh, potential discovery by allying themselves with the notion of Galileo and that, and that the astronomers are sort of under attack. And I found that funny um, because I wonder when you look at the two communities and the astronomer community, largely, largely white male driven community, um, one that probably does not have very much representation from native Hawaiians in it without surprise, how sensitive they are to the cultural problems here um, that this community, that the Hawaiians are uh, taking under deep consideration here. Uh, and at the same time, this is the one place this telescope can go on the earth. Is There's, that really true? Why? It, that's the spot, according to a lot of astronomers, where this can be to accomplish the scientific goals. Okay. So, so is this a, how do we take into account the, the scientific goals of the many versus the deep-seated and, and valid, from my viewpoints, concerns of the few that have lived on this island or have a heritage on this island for you know, thousands of years? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's a really important question. You know, of course, the U.S. doesn't have a particularly clean history of taking into account the uh, feelings of the native population. And, you know, almost no country that I can think of really does, uh, you know, in the world that there's that there's, you know, there are people who oppress and there are the oppressed and so forth. And 
um, you know, we try to make amends and, and to behave ethically. Um, so there's a history of, of this kind of thing in a lot of ways, too. But, you know, I try to think of, uh, of what it would be like if this was happening, say, in San Francisco, where I live, where there is also a very strong uh, community attachment to, say, like the Victorian houses and some of the historical buildings here. And that, you know, we have very strict building regulations and so forth. And so if somebody said, look, we're going to take one of your major landmarks, like the Golden Gate Bridge, and we're going to desecrate it with a massive telescope... <laughs> But that's you know? <laughs> the one place the telescope can go. And I think people would be upset about it. But ultimately, I think probably, you know, you can convince people that this is for the greater good. Um, and that's what I think that scientists have to do a better job of of talking to, you know, this particular group and explaining to them why they think that this is necessary. And if they can't explain that properly, then they're not doing their jobs well enough, I think. I wonder about the greater good actually that good making its way to these people if they see the benefits of any of that good but i think that's up to the scientists and that's why i think science communication is so important i mean you know you and i are are evangelists of a sort from that perspective and so you know I, i think that's the onus is on the scientist if you if you really can't um and i you know again you can't always convince people who have different beliefs to believe in the same things that you feel are important um but i think that you can at least come close to it and you know by having these conversations i think um i think the real value of of this which has happened many times now through astronomical history is a point of reflection for the scientists within this community to take stock of how they're of who they are, how they're reflecting their message out to communities that don't ha- have different value systems that don't align mm-hmm. to to what they represent. And, and I think that could be a really in- incredibly valuable discussion in this age where we often talk about the diversity of the scientific populace not matching that of the general populace at large. And maybe it's a good lesson in diplomacy, too. Maybe they can't not go forward with the project, but maybe they can make it more palatable in some way, you know, figuring out how to leave a uh, less deep environmental footprint or, you know, making amends in some other way, you know, setting aside some other land uh, that they promise they won't touch or, you know, buy out um, and make it some kind of a public public land. So hopefully they'll they'll come to a solution in which they won't alienate uh, the people who live there and uh, instead bring people closer to um, understanding why science is important. This is one of those stories I haven't seen a lot of of widespread coverage of, so I hope our listeners uh, take a look and decide for themselves. With that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Sanjoy Mahajan. This episode is sponsored by Ex Machina. A24 presents this sci-fi thriller directed by the writer of Sunshine and 28 Days Later. The Telegraph calls it bewitchingly smart science fiction, and the Daily Mirror declares it's an instant classic. Recently, our producer, Adam Isaac, watched the movie, and he couldn't say enough good things about it, in part because the science, apparently, is really great. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it. A lot of it is about artificial intelligence, a topic that is close to my heart. It stars Oscar Isaac, Domhnall Gleeson, and Alicia Vikander, and... Today, April 10th, Ex Machina opens in select theaters in New York and L.A. with more cities and theaters every week after. And this episode is sponsored by the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, whose latest exhibition, Doris Salcedo, runs through May 24th. The landmark retrospective of Colombian artist's 30-year career features sculptures and installations that bear witness 
to the aftermath of political violence in the modern world and includes works that have never been shown in the United States. Learn more at mcachicago.org. Sanjoy Mahajan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks. In problem solving, as in street fighting, rules are for fools. That's how you let off your famous TEDx talk uh, to talk about street fighting mathematics. Can you give us a primer on street fighting mathematics? The idea is to do away with the paralysis that people feel whenever they come to a math problem or using math or numbers to understand the world. People have learned because of the way math is taught so badly that in math there's only one right answer and there's only one way to do it. And you're going between the problem and the answer through this you know, high mountain range and if you make one mistake you'll fall into the valley of error to your death. So it's no surprise people feel paralyzed. Saying, oh my God, if I don't, how do you, did you carry the one or is it the one or do you take it away? What happens here? And the approach in street fighting math says, let's just try something. Let's get something roughly right and we can improve it if we need it. But just start hacking your way through the jungle. Don't just stand there. And now in public policy, I don't think that's such a great policy to shoot people and then ask about, well, should I have shot that person? But in, but in math, policy, that works. In math, that's what you need to do. And so math in that way is not like the real world. So you should actually just start doing something. It gives you a feel for the problem. It gives you an idea how big are these things. Is this even problem even worth solving? Suppose you're trying to estimate, uh, you know, how much is this bridge going to cost to build? And if you find that just in your crude estimates, it's going to cost $50 billion because of the way it's designed, you think, well, screw that. That's never going to work. There's no point figuring out whether it's 48 billion or 47 or 53. It's just unaffordable. Uh, so you can save a lot of work by doing that. And if you find that, oh, it's actually affordable, then you can spend the effort to figure exactly how affordable, what exactly it's going to cost by doing more effort. So it helps you uh, put your effort where it's most useful and not spend your effort where it's completely worthless to spend your time. So it seems like speed is one of the, the key factors here, is that the approximation is quick uh, and you get into it. I was wondering if we can give our listeners a quick example of going through the mental gymnastics of um, street fighting math. Sure. Though I would say speed isn't the end. It's the means. It's one of the means. The end is that you have an understanding of what's going on that's not concealed behind a whole bunch of symbol pushing. Uh, and speed helps with that because it forces you to use uh, simple methods that you can fit in your head and see. But the goal is really insight, so seeing what you're doing. And so speed helps with that, uh, but it's not the only way to do it. And it's not the, it's ne usually it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Uh, so just speeding up what you're normally doing isn't necessarily the right way to do things. You want to find ways of thinking about stuff that help you get to the conclusion quicker because they're more efficient and more parsimonious. So an example, let's, let's estimate, uh, the, size of the diaper market. This is the kind of question that people get asked when they go for jobs in management consulting. Uh, because in fields like that, you know, each week or maybe every few weeks, you're working on a completely new project, new industry, trying to understand it. And they want to know, are you someone who can figure out what's going on roughly 
uh, fairly soon? Or do you say, oh, sorry, I never studied the diaper industry. I never took a course on that, in which case you're out the door. So suppose someone says, well, okay, how much is spent on diapers every year in America? Do you say, I can't do it? Or do you have to start with something? So let's do something. Let's use the number one technique, uh, which is to break the big problems into smaller ones. So let's break it into a few steps of we're going to estimate how many diapers are used per year and the cost of each diaper. And then we'll break down the number of diapers per year into number of diapers per day total, and then break that down into number of diapers per day per person, uh, and then number of diapers per day total by figuring out how many people are using diapers. So we have a few steps. One is, you know, converting from days to years. We know how to do that one. But how many diapers are used per day? Now, I can say that when I first tried this and estimated it, this was before I had kids, I said two. And all the that's, people around me that's definitely wrong. howling. <laughs> they just started howling. They said, oh, you have no idea. And I can say, having uh, had kids through diapers now, I can say I was totally deluded. So I would say it's something like five or ten. Now, it gets smaller as the kids get older. Uh, so let's say who uses diapers, there's between zero and just below two years. So for two years, you use diapers, and how many you use per day? I don't know, five or ten. Uh, now, how many people are there who are you know, zero years or one year old? So that's yet another estimate. The easiest way to do this one is also to break it down. Uh, so there's roughly 300 million people in the U.S., and they live to, let's say, 80 years. Now, zero years and one years are two out of those 80 years. Uh, so that's 140th of the U.S., roughly. And so 140th of 300 million is about 10 million. So we'll say there's 10 million people using diapers. They use maybe five diapers a day. So now we're talking... 50 million diapers a day. I think, oh my God, that's a lot of diapers. Uh, now we have to convert that to diapers per year. Uh, so there's roughly 400 days in a year. Uh, so we'll multiply by 20 and then multiply by 20 again to get 400. Uh, so we had 50 million times 20 is a billion times 20 again, 20 billion. So 20 billion diapers are used per year, roughly. And now we that's just a lot of diapers. It's <laughs> a lot of diapers. So now let's just estimate the cost in dollars. Uh, maybe it's one-fifth of a dollar per diaper, something like that, 20 cents uh, for a half-decent diaper. So that's $4 billion a year for the uh, diaper market. So that's a reasonable estimate of the size of the diaper market. Now, I didn't know uh, at first whether that was a reasonable estimate, uh, but then I learned from someone who wrote to me, he said, oh, yeah, it's true that it is hard to find these uh, amounts out if you do a Google search. You know, the reports on diaper market size are about $500 or $1,000. But he happened to have written one of these reports, and he said, yeah, the uh, actual diaper market in 2010 or so was uh, $5.3 billion. Oh, my so, goodness. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, and, you know, pretty- if I... Yeah, if you're happy, if you're within a factor of two, I would say in these kind of estimates, or 10 sometimes, depending on how many steps there are. Uh, and here, you know, we're within 20, 30%. But the point is, we're, we actually got the main part right. It's a few billion. And that 
is the kind of feel that you want to have for all the numbers in the world around you. And this is how you start developing it. Uh, that's incredibly impressive. In just like two minutes, you got to uh, a pretty close estimate of, of the actual market size. Uh, how long did it take for you to come around to this way of, of thinking? Was it intuitive or is this learned? It's a good question. It was quickly clear to me that this was the right way to go about doing things. I I had just some, uh, you know, facility with numbers always because I was always interested in numbers. And so whenever I saw, you know, complicated numbers, I would always try to understand them by simplifying them and saying, oh, okay, so that's roughly one-fifth or that's a, you know, a five-to-one ratio. For Here's an example of that. Uh, when I was a student in England, you know, I you know, would read the newspaper and I'd read about, say, the number of traffic deaths on the highways in England or in the UK. And, you know, the number question is, is that number big or small? Is that a lot of traffic deaths? Not so many. And the right way to compare it is, say, with the U.S., you can't just compare it directly because the U.K. has a lot fewer people than the U.S., but you do it by ratio. So there's about 60 million people in the U.K., 300 in the U.S., so it's one-fifth the size. And then what about the number of traffic deaths? Well, it turns out the number of traffic deaths compared to the U.S. is something like one-twentieth. So with one-fifth the number of people, they have one-twentieth the number of traffic deaths, which means the highways are about four times safer, or the roads in general, four times safer. So you can make numbers meaningful like that, and I would uh, just do those kind of things automatically. And then when I was a graduate student, I was a teaching assistant for a course called Order of Magnitude Physics, which was all about how to do this in all areas of physics. Uh, and you know, there I systematized these ways of thinking uh, for myself and also when I was teaching the other students. And that's when I started writing my books on this area. And so then it became really solidified. I, I was surprised uh, when I was reading your materials how often uh, this phrase came up, the art of approximation. And art isn't the first word that comes to mind when I think about doing mathematical estimates. But that seems like a very conscious decision to bring in the that word. Can you tell me why you think it's an art? It's an art because there's no necessarily one right way of doing it. But it's an art and also in like architecture, there's not one right way to build a building. But there are some buildings that just work better than other buildings. You know, they work better for the people who are in there because they look more beautiful. Uh, they give you a deeper sense of satisfaction. So in that way, it has many qualities of art to it. But also like architecture, which is an art, uh, there's a lot of science behind it. There's a lot of principles that you need to use. Uh, so you know, m people think art is just do whatever you want. But I don't think that's the right uh, interpretation of art. Uh, if you think of it as just do whatever you want, then it seems very much the opposite of science, which is supposed, supposedly, or science or math, supposedly very rule-based. But neither characterization of art or science is correct. Science has lots of artistic, creative aspects to it, and art has a lot of scientific aspects to it. So the two are actually pretty close already. Uh, and I wanted to bring those two together in the idea of the art of insight, uh, which is my new book, or the art of approximation, uh, which is the course I teach based on it. So you mentioned earlier that 
uh, you know, management consultants and other people going through interviews get often get questions like this. And they're, they're kind of fantastical questions that force you to approximate an estimate. But how is this actually connected to my life in reality? Because when I think right, about... if you're not a management consultant or something, yeah. Yeah, I'm not a management consultant. Like, how is this actually meaningful? Am I ever going to use street mathematics in my in my day-to-day? Because if not, it's a flight of fancy. Um, how does it step beyond that? Well, you should use it every day, all the time. Because whenever you see a number, you should try to make sense of it. And that's what people don't do. So their eyes just glaze over and then they become basically bamboozled and subject for a lot of fraud, uh, political fraud. You know, I don't mean just to get tricked out of their money, but I mean, they actually can't be good citizens of a democratic society that have control over where their money is being spent. So and how the world is being reported to them. So, for example, uh, you know, a few years ago, there was a headline and an article in the Boston papers after some sports team won some big uh cup, the Stanley Cup. Uh, I don't know what sport that is and I don't pay any Oh the much hockey player to it. inside of me is crying right now because oh, okay. that's definitely the championship so, for ice hockey. So I deduced that it's a hockey thing. So uh there was some big hockey championship and Boston won and there was a article in the paper that said a million Cheering fans went out into the streets uh, around North Station, which is where the uh, stadium is, uh, to cheer on the champions. And now most people, when they see the million, they say, okay, it's just some number. It becomes a sort of vague grunting noise in her hand. Fans went into the streets. You just keep reading for the, quote, actual words. But that million is quite important because it helps you understand the media. So you think you should should do is say, well, a million. Okay, now what can I compare that to? Because the way you understand numbers is you make friends with them. And the way you make friends with things is you connect them. So you have to connect it to other numbers you know. So let's think about other numbers we know that would be relevant. For example, the population of Boston and all the surrounding suburbs is a million. So is it that likely that every single person from all the surrounding suburbs turned out in the middle of a work day to cheer on the champion team? Not very likely. So a million is just basically BS. And you find that for many, many numbers given out by governments, corporations, put in the newspaper, like most you know, statistics are that 75 or 80% of articles in newspapers are basically just corporate press releases. So, you know, no surprise that the numbers in there are basically fake. Uh, but if people don't have a sense for numbers, how to compare them, how to estimate ratios, they'll never find that. Why do you think people gloss over those numbers so quickly and don't take a deeper look at their meaning? Well, they have no way of no, doing it. They have been taught no skills, and they've been actually de-skilled in it. So it turns out that the way we naturally think about numbers is the right way to go about things like that. The way we naturally think about numbers is ratio. We care. We what we see is oh, that's twice as much as that. That's three times as much as this. This is fifty percent bigger. That's the way we perceive quantity in comparison to other quantities. So, for example, this happens this is true even for lions. Apparently, lions when they look to decide whether this invading troop or approaching troop is dangerous or not, they compare their size to the other troop size. And if it's, you know, bigger than 1.5 or something, they decide, okay, it's time to get out out of here. Uh, So they're using ratio. And that's our natural way of perceiving quantity. But it's taught out of us by school. So in school, so if you 
look at tribes in the Amazon, they still actually, that don't have formal counting that's taught in schools, they still perceive quantities by ratio. In our schools, we're actually taught not to do that. We're supposed to perceive quantities by difference. But that's crazy. So here's an example why that's such a bad way of understanding the world. So let's talk about, say, uh, prices, like, say, the Dow Jones. If the Dow Jones goes from 10,000 to 11,000, is that as big an increase as going from 1,000 to 2,000? I mean, if you just look at differences, sure, it's 1,000. But if you look at ratio, the 1,000 to 2,000 is a huge increase, and 10,000 to 11,000 is only a 10% increase, where the other one is a doubling. So it's, again, ratio that really matters. But we're taught to do everything by differences. You know, we, we learn first addition, then we learn subtraction, and then we learn multiplication as a whole bunch of addition, uh, which is a stupid way of thinking about it. It's much better to think of it as the predecessor to ratio, you know, how much are we scaling things up and division is scaling things down or comparing. But we, the school way of teaching these manipulating quantity and understand quantity is completely backwards. So when people come across big numbers like a million, they just close their eyes. They have no way of understanding it as, oh, okay, let's compare it. Because my way of understanding numbers, especially big ones, is I have to compare. What should I compare it to? That needs to be taught. What What's the better way to conceptualize this uh, in our school system then? How should math be taught, I guess? So there was a actually an existence proof that this could be done well. Uh, Louis Benezet, who was superintendent of schools in Manchester, New Hampshire, uh, when he came in, he said, the way that we're teaching arithmetic is, and I quote, chloroforming the children's reasoning abilities. So he abolished all the standard teaching of algorithms and the formal teaching of arithmetic. And instead, he didn't just say, okay, now go play, do whatever the hell you want. Uh, he said, now what we're going to do is we're going to use numbers, we're going to estimate, we're going to approximate, uh, we're going to read lots of stories We're going to uh, that say have numbers in them. You know, For example, about, there's geology things, so you get big time scales. Uh, there's, you know, rivers that change their course over a certain time. You can estimate, you know, every few feet every year, how long does it take for the Mississippi to change its course or change its size or flow this much. There was numbers all over the place in the curriculum. So then at the end of, so this was uh, abolished from grades one to seven or one to six, depending on which individual school. And then at the end of that time, they learned all the formal algorithms in three months. And they were just as good or better at the formal algorithms as all the regular students, and they were far superior in reasoning ability and ability to actually understand numbers. So this was a fantastic math curriculum, probably one of the best ever made. So math curriculum is is in uh, significant focus right now with Common Core, which is a set of standards that a number of states have um, have adopted, and uh, a, a number fewer are actually implementing. What's your sort of take on this? new approach um, to actually improve how math is taught and and contextualize how math is taught in a, in a more rigorous way. Yeah, I think it's mostly bogus. Um, I, so Benezet, he did it much better than Common Core. And what I didn't say before was that he was superintendent from 1924 to 1938. And then he was driven out by the standardistas and the testing. So maniacs. he's not... A, He's no longer with us. To He's no longer on with us. Court. <laughs> right. Uh, but what he did has not been used. And so Common Core took no notice of anything like that that was done. Uh, it also doesn't uh, 
it, yeah, it has pays lip service to, you know, students should be able to uh, have some facility with mental arithmetic, but students are still using calculators all the way through. Uh, there's no fixing of the broken way math is taught all the way through U.S. high schools, all fragmented. Uh, there's some, quote, rigor, but there's no teaching of ratio and quantity. So I've written a long critique of standard by standard of the Common Core from grades one all the way through, I think, 10 is what I looked at. Uh, and it's just lacking all over the place. Are you actually hopeful then that something can be accomplished? Because it took the better part of a decade to Common Core to even bubble to the surface. Uh, can you actually imagine a solution being implemented uh, that would make a difference in how math is taught? Oh, sure. I just can't imagine it being implemented through the top-down Common Core kind of approach because, frankly, I mean, we have, we live in a quite unequal society where people are bamboozled all the time into accepting their uh, the fraud that's perpetrated on them. There's not a big incentive for the people who run the society to have everyone all of a sudden understand a lot and figure out how the world works. So I'm not expecting that some big top-down thing is all of a sudden going to have a big incentive to teach people how to think. Quite the opposite, actually. Can technology play a role here? We seem to have a, an incredible set of tools to uh, visualize, uh, to share, uh, to generate information in ways that we didn't even 10 years ago. Uh, can it make a difference in how math is being taught? You can use any tool to improve math teaching and how math is understood, but you don't need technology to do that. You could do it with books. Benedict did this in 1924 using not even mimeograph materials. So technology isn't necessary, new technologies. In fact, what mostly happens with new technologies is you just spread around the rubbish that we're doing more widely. It's like the uh, parable of the shopkeeper who's who says, yeah, it's we take a loss on, small loss on each item, but we make up for it in volume. <laughs> and so the Amazon you know, way. Yeah, so we have bad math curriculum, but we spread it more widely with technology. Is that helping anyone? No. Well, it's funny you say that because the way I stumbled upon you is that a friend of mine actually took your uh your MOOC, your massive online course on this, and it had me rethink how I learned mathematics. So it was sort of the opposite. I found the diamond in the rough, if you will. Uh, and I was wondering if you comment on your experience with utilizing these these MOOCs, these uh, these huge online courses, and whether you think they've actually helped uh, uh, instruction. So this is where, again, you have to not can't lump all MOOCs together. So overall, MOOCs have been educationally worthless. There's a study uh, in coming out or came out in 2000, early 2015, uh, the educational quality of MOOCs. And they studied the <clears throat> 76 MOOCs, 50 kind of traditional, what we think of as regular MOOCs like edX, Coursera, Udacity. And they rated them on a really good instructional design scale from zero to 72 points. And the uh, range was, I believe, three to 25 with a median of eight when most of those eight points coming from just organization, the points that they got for organizing the material. So the educational quality overall of MOOCs is extremely low. It's true that you can actually make educationally high quality things and MOOCs. And 
I like to think mine was decent and certainly had good points about it. Uh, so it had, for example, uh, questions that forced students to construct proofs. Uh, so it engaged you at a high level of reasoning, uh, which people think, oh, you can't do with technology. All you can do is yes or no, but that's not true. You can actually do good things with it. But uh, most courses in the, in that we teach in universities are generally bad. The students don't learn much. They come out learning, basically road learning. Now, if you put those on MOOCs, you haven't really helped anybody. Uh, so oh, you've done is general, spread the, yeah. Yeah, you're going to be, we, we have this big chance now to change, you know, we all of our stuff, say, on LPs, and now the CD format and analog has come out, and we're re-recording all of our music onto CDs, but we're not changing the music. So if the music was bad to start with, it's still going to be bad. So it's funny you say that. I asked a provocative question about MOOCs because uh, there's a, I, I haven't been uh, very much in favor of them from an educational perspective, largely because the data on the completion rates is so bad uh, that so many people that uh, that uh, the number of people that that start is only a fraction of those that um, yeah complete these courses. Uh, but it's, uh, well, so it's so interesting it to hear your perspective. Well, that turns out that is also a lot of fake data. Uh, it's done by all the, it's a result of all the marketing that goes on. Basically, our, our society just runs on image all the time. So everybody is just marketing all the time. So the way marketing in MOOCs work is that they want to get tons of people registered so they can say, we have so many millions of people registered for our courses. And so if you compare the number of people who finish the course to the number of people who register, yeah, the completion rates are low between, say, 1% and 10%. Maybe it's a few percent. But if you use this slightly higher me me measure of whether someone actually tried to do something in the course at all, just did they even look at the course material separate from registering? So even visit the, you know, the page that lists all the weeks uh, or even open a page that looks at, uh, starts a video, but didn't, didn't even necessarily look at the video. So this trivial amount of engagement, if you use that as the number, then the completion rates, at least for the edX courses, are about 20-30%, which isn't too bad. It's just that number in the denominator is then much smaller, so it's not so good for marketing. So tracking back to what you were saying earlier, you know, pointing to the problem of college instruction, which is uh, there's been, a, you know, National Academy reports uh, in the past few years on uh, on that being a big impediment to our overall educational system in terms of how uh, early classes in college are taught, how do they get better? I mean, you as a professor face a number of pressures um, that go far beyond um, uh, teaching. Uh, so how does that get better? Yeah, that's the problem is that the universities don't really give a damn about teaching. They say they do for marketing reasons, but their fundamental goal is research ranking, ranking, which is basically research ranking. It's part of the uh, basically the zero sum society we have with and the neoliberal hell that has been created for everyone, which is everything has to be market. We're going to create a market and everything. So now there's market in university rankings and it's a big marketplace. So every university wants to increase its ranking. How do you increase your ranking? You get more research funds uh, from which you can get more overhead, which you can build more things, more athletic complexes, hire more star faculty, get more, which you can then market more. So it's all about marketing and image. And 
teaching, which doesn't actually have any outside direct visibility the way you you know, you can do press releases about our researchers have, you know, just won this award or that award. You can't do that with teaching. So teaching gets short shrift. And so if you, as a faculty member, spend your effort on teaching, you will get fired. So Not how do we get better? How do we, how do we set up an incentive system that does reward better teaching? Well, I, I think the whole notion of incentive system and reward is part of this whole marketing and neoliberal mentality. You have to get away from that. You actually set up an institution that has that as a value, which they used to do, and just give that institution money. So it's not an incentive system. This is what most people who come into academia value. They really they value sharing knowledge with students. That's why they came into academia. It's just they're pulled along by basically the requirements to keep a job. So it's not that you need to create a whole bunch of incentives. You just have to get rid of these basically terrible incentives that we've actually imposed upon the universities. Do you see that as a possibility? Yeah, because the universities might actually just destroy themselves by their ridiculous uh, greed and raising the tuition 7 8 9% every year, uh, such that it becomes totally unaffordable and then people just have to invent a new institution for education because uh, now it's just becoming a luxury good with a brand name attached to it. So you're one, one man sort of fight, fighting this fight and there are a number of other educational researchers and, um, uh, and teachers that uh, have said things in the, in the same vein as you. Uh, how are you going to push this um, concept forward? Well, I, it's a good question. One way is by making materials available to everybody uh, that teach in a different way. So my book, Street Fighting Mathematics, uh, from five years ago, and my new one, The Art of Insight in Science and Engineering, uh, they're both published by MIT Press. And I mean, both of them, MIT Press agreed to publish it under a Creative Commons uh, non-commercial share-like license. And so on their website, you can legally get the PDF file. Uh, and you can share it with everybody. You can put it on your website. You can use it in your teaching. Uh, you just can't sell it. But everything else you can do with it. And that uh, was the goal of actually sharing good ways of thinking with everyone, which is, I think, our responsibility as educators. You know, we have a salary. Uh, we're not starving artists. Uh, we can actually do this. Uh, we have a position of security. And so I think these kind of things are one of our obligations and something that's enjoyable to do. I'm really happy that, you know, probably 20 times as many people have read my book through downloading it than uh, buying it. And I'm glad about that. I want as many people as possible to think in a different way about mathematics and science. You know, the number one thing I got from, um, you know, watching videos of you speak and and uh, hearing my friend talk about going through your course is that it's really clear that you love math. And not just love math because it's it's your profession. You you see beauty in it, and you seem to see utility in it. Uh, what what is it that you sort of feel and see that you wish um, that others um, that go through your course that that experience how math is currently taught could experience? You know, it took me a while to finally come up with the following image, but it speaks to me. So the, the way this image came about was. I had ended up having to teach my daughter to read uh, because her school uses 
basically this brain damaged philosophy of reading teaching called her old school, uh, whole language, uh, which is basically the sort of the sixties free to be you and me gone wild where we don't teach anything. We just let students be exposed to literature and they'll supposedly teach themselves to read. It's a pile of complete rubbish. Uh, but they don't actually teach phonetics, how to actually sound out words and construct the language and understand the language that way. So they've lost a brilliant insight, which I'm going to say, and then math is the analogous one. So the brilliant insight that people figured out thousands of years ago was that language you can break language into sounds, speech into sounds, and you can represent those sounds with letters. And that was the invention of writing. And that was, I think, one of the greatest human inventions ever made. Analogously, out in the world, just like in our linguistic world, there's sounds that make up our speech. Well, in the physical and engineered and social world, there's quantity that's out there. And mathematics allows us to represent quantity with number. And that means there's a vast amount of the world that we can understand and make sense of, and it fits together because of mathematics. You know, so just like sounds can be represented by symbols, letters, in our world, quantity, which is part of our social, our engineered, our scientific world, it's all of our world, is bathed in quantity. We can represent quantity with number. And that's the great power of mathematics. That seems like a beautiful place to stop. Sanjoy Mahajan, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. The thing that shocked me about that interview was what he said about the quality of instruction at universities. Does that line up with your experience? I was shocked too. And I, you know, I think I hear where he's coming from, where you've got very large, you know, what we call R1 or research-based universities. And I certainly, that's where I got all of my education until I did my master's of music at a conservatory. Um, but now I'm an adjunct at a more of a liberal arts college at the University of San Francisco. And I disagree. I think that there are colleges, the liberal arts college model is based on good teaching and small classrooms. I mean, none of my classes are more have more than 35 students in them, which is a huge departure from, you know, my bio 101, the University of Toronto, it's 1600 students, um, where instruction is really important. And, and, you know, the there's a whole long de- you know, debate that we can have about whether adjunct faculty should even exist because of the numbers of adjuncts now that are teaching university um, students. And that's, that's a whole other issue that maybe we can talk about on a different show. But I certainly know that as an adjunct, I have to be a really good teacher or else they're going to fire me, replace me with somebody else. I don't have tenure. So I have to teach well. So I work at a university and The place I disagree with him is I think the professional, the graduate level education seems to have uh, reasons to be taught well. Like, I think there's great reasons that medical schools crank out good doctors. And the same with the the sciences. And I think the same can go across a lot of different fields. So I'm going to focus on undergraduate education. And while I think you can be right about the small liberal art school. There's such a small percentage of the total number of students that are coming through. And 
it's expensive as heck to go to a lot of those schools. Like we're talking $50,000 a year for a lot of quality liberal arts schools in this country. Yeah, but that's what I, I guess that's one of the things that I find surprising about what he said is that people are already paying that premium for the teaching excellence, which liberal arts colleges are known for. Um, and so, you know, I have a lot of friends now who finished their PhDs and did a postdoc and are in the job market. So we talk a lot about what do you need to do in order to get a job at a liberal arts college versus an R1 university. Um, and certainly you have to have a lot of teaching experience. That's like the number one thing. And you have to demonstrate that you love Love teaching and so forth. So I think what what he's talking about, you know, where he talks about how students are going to, you know, actually choose other universities where teaching, you know, they start paying for that, that already exists in the liberal arts college model. I think it does. But we can't ignore the problem that these research universities have, where I don't think there are enough resources available to improve the instruction. There isn't that common will because there just isn't enough time when you start to add it all up. But I think this now we have to talk about the whole business of research, right? And the whole business of academic institutions where, you know, you're, you're, you go from grant to grant to grant. And yes, I mean, if you don't get the next grant, you don't get paid and so forth, especially at a place like the one that you work at where it's primarily a medical based system. And so you don't necessarily have, you know, ladder faculty that just teach and, you know, you've, you've got, you've got this, they have to bring in the money in order to pay their own salaries. And, um, so, you know, I think that we'd have to tackle that whole topic of what, what do you need to do to get a grant, which is publish, 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 right? And, you know, that whole model, I think has to be rethought given that conversation we had a couple weeks ago where, you know, science is producing too much Mm -hmm. science. I mean, we really shouldn't be publishing so much. Um, there's, there's not enough time to read all the public's published papers that are out there already. So, you know, I've, I've always felt that we, we should really be looking at uh, quality over quantity and that the, it should no longer be about the numbers of publications, but rather over the quality of the work. And, you know, that's going to be really hard to measure in a lot of ways. The scariest thing I think I read all week was a infographic that showed the rise of student debt over the last 15 years and how it's quadrupled. Uh, and in no small part due to the rise of for-profit colleges, mm-hmm. I think we have to also revisit this notion that college isn't for everyone. There's been this huge movement over the last 20 years to get everyone to go through college because the unemployment rate when you go through college is astonishingly low compared to the rest of the population. But I think we also have to admit college isn't for everyone. I mean, I, I, I see where you're coming from. And I think that there's some truth to that. But I think before we even get to the colleges and everyone, so you know, you should just not feel bad if you don't get a college degree, we should look at the fact that the rise in tuition, this is another study that I read recently, um, really comes down to not a, la- a decrease in public funding. In fact, public funding has increased when for colleges when you measure look at it. Inflation, inflation adjusted, adjusted, not necessarily per capita, but you know, colleges have been, you know, um, accepting more students. But the one thing that has risen and tripled and quadrupled is the amount of money that colleges spend on their administrators. No, you you know, I'll say it, you know, that's where we should be making cuts. There's way too much administration in universities. Although would that mean that your job would get cut? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not a college administrator. But I, uh, I don't think this is one of those easy problems. Again, I think we've seen a rise in enrollment. And we've seen while we've seen consistent state funding inflation adjusted, we haven't seen that per capita per student rise at the same rate. So I understand the pressure there. But this competition to uh, among research universities to recruit 
better and better faculty and compete with each other, which has become, you know, in a way, a war with each other to attract the best talent, which is a phrase that I never thought I would hear in universities, but is a very common phrase now. I think that's the one that I would point to as um, being indicative of the problem more than anything else. Well, but I also think that best talent has to start including some aspect of communication and teaching and so forth. I don't think that you can be the best talent anymore and not be able to communicate to either your students or the public at large about what it is that you do and why it's important. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or any ideas you have to improve university education to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by pizza fanatic Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And Kishore, in case you were wondering, tonight is Friday and my husband and I have instituted a pizza night on Friday. So my, my pizza consumption will quadruple. We had a song for our Friday night pizza night in our household. <laughs> and we're your hosts. I'm Indre Visconti. So you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.